You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and try to talk about it in spite of her dog distracting her <laughs> in the process. How's it going, Em? Yeah, he's quite, <laughs> you know, he's at that stage where Ty called it the terrible twos, but you know, with puppies, it only lasts a few months versus a full year. So he's just bored right now. We've been snowed in and I have. I injured my shoulder, so we haven't been doing as much, and he's taking it out on me today. <laughs> no, we, so. you know, people say the terrible twos with my daughters. We didn't have terrible twos. We had terrible three through four with both of them, basically. So, um, And then you kind of get that reprieve until about eight, and then, yeah, then girls just lose their minds between 14 and 18, so... Um, I love both my daughters, but man, not fun years. So, so yeah. yes, give me a dog. That's that's even with all the chaos that he's causing in the house right now. Give me a dog, and so, uh, yeah. And for anyone who isn't like a friend with me on Facebook, you know, come over to Facebook. There's plenty of pictures of your little Hector. So yeah, and he he seems like a pretty and, smart little pup. And- well, you know, he he's smart, he's determined, and uh, he's growing, like, exponentially, it seems like. It, it's bizarre. He's he's going to be a huge dog, which makes me happy. Ty, not so much, but me, I'm thrilled. So <laughs> so if you hear any, you know, basically all that to, to say, if you hear any kerfuffle in the background, it's just my dog losing his mind. Because I can't lock him into another room, because it just sounds like we're trying to kill him in another room. So that doesn't help with recording much. Yeah, yeah. So, well, all that fun dog-related information aside, um, we are here to <laughs> talk about the Bible and, and what we've read in it and what what's there and what we can learn. So catch us yeah. up. Give us, give us a brief synopsis of last time. I know there was a ton of information, but... See if you can do like the uh, yeah condensed version of that. Well, basically, last last week we were looking at those connections between the Second um, Samuel twenty one, Second Samuel twenty four, but then also uh, Genesis, uh, the Akeda, and um, there was another story, the Exodus, the Exodus, and trying to see how all of those played together and how you had to read all four together to kind of really get to the meat of the story and to understand each story more fully. And, and just how amazing that is, uh, that the Bible can work that way and that the writers were inspired to actually bring these different threads together to give us not just more information about the event they're writing about, but also to help us kind of understand previous events. And so we talked about that, but then I made a mistake. Um, I hate whenever I find like a good source on a topic we just covered and because then it's like, I get all this new information and it's like, well, I didn't talk about that and I didn't mention that nor I didn't know to talk about that. So since we recorded, I actually listened to another podcast. It's from Drisha. Uh, I've referenced Drisha before. Um, I love to listen to um, Rabbi uh, David Silber. He's one of the, the head people out there. He actually, I think he's the founder. And anyway, his specialty is Samuel. So, of course, he's got a lot of really good information. And he was talking about something that he didn't realize until after many, many years of studying David and Saul together. And I thought, because we were looking at that contrast of of, of 2 Samuel 21, where Saul is the one who brings about the blood guilt. And David has to address it. And then David's uh, issue with the census and trying to save Jerusalem and the, the comparison there, I thought this would be a good time to actually bring in this information that I, you know, providentially stumbled across this last week, because I think it's good. And I think it really helps us understand. So um, we're going to look at 
a comparison and contrast of David and Saul before we move forward in the text, because it still kind of plays off of the themes that we have in 21 and 24 of 2 Samuel. So we noticed uh, last week that in Jewish tradition, creation does not end until we get to the Akedah, that binding of Isaac. That's, that's the final day of creation in a lot of Jewish traditions. Now, what I didn't realize was uh, Rabbi Silver actually points out that David and Saul's story is actually a retelling of the creation account if you follow it through that entire, um, that entire cycle. Now, Dr. Silver kind of, or Rabbi Silver actually gave me, um, gave me a good jumping off point. But then I, I kind of embellished and I've added to what he had to say. So if this is completely crazy, we can't blame him completely. Just so you know, uh, you kind of have to, um, you know, I have to take the blame for it, I guess. But anyway, so first of all, we got to address with uh, a few issues. And one of the issues is there is this really big trend out there to really separate Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Like they're two completely separate and distinct accounts. And that they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Drives right. me crazy. Why do we do that? I mean, if God's going to present them together, yeah, we should take them together. Well, you know, it, so it, it gives us room for things like Lilith to, to have the two accounts, right? <laughs> you shouldn't do this, okay? We shouldn't do what? Lilith is bunk okay yeah. everybody out there gets so fascinated oh look the adam had a first wife you see it because of genesis 127 and then eve's not created till two and no 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 this is not <laughs> that's not how that works okay lilith does not exist it's some feminist crazy idea of some scriptural vindication to be mad at god no the verse in isaiah that's not lilith that is some kind of weird crazy night creature that yes has the same letters in it but so does m&ms and mcdonald's I, it, it doesn't matter they're two different things don't 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 get confused okay why yeah. do you do that to me I, I, <laughs> well you know you, you ask why we try to separate those things um it, it's it's popular to do it because you, you can... ha didn't have to go there <laughs> like find the fuse okay here we go yeah, yeah. No, I well, honestly, that's what it comes down to. A lot of this stuff, and we're going to actually be picking up a lot of things as we move forward. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that people will try to interpret or or add to or divide because it does create the holes for stupid, stupid theology. And it's amazing how God, when He wraps all this stuff together and He stitches the Bible together, there's no holes for that. Okay, you just can't make that that slip through. And be a part of any kind of coherent theology within the framework of the Bible. So if your theology gets just, you know, out there weird, you probably just need to study your Bible more. Now, I'm, I should make the caveat that doesn't mean there's not weird stuff in the Bible. I'll say the Bible's weird so, enough on its own. We don't have to go making stuff up. Right? I mean, come on. This is, yeah. And so, yeah, I get it. I get it. I think every, I mean, isn't Lilith like such a college girl concept now? I mean, you're a freshman in college and you discover that there's a library with mythologies in it. I mean, woo. Okay. Can we get over it already? I mean, <laughs> so funny. Can it stop being trendy? I, I, I don't understand why people want this to be a trend. It shouldn't be a trend. So what I, what I think is, anyway. I think it's funny. There's, I, I constantly am looking at, you know, uh, what is it? Well, there's a few of them now. There's like Cracked and is it Grunge is the other one now. And then there's mm -hmm. like all the listicle, you know, uh, and video things. Things where you didn't know about the Bible. Things you didn't know about the Bible. And I always have to watch those just in case there's something that is new. And it's funny to me how it's like Lilith is almost always on the, the leading item on almost every single one of those lists. But oh my gosh. Most of it, a, it is. I mean, and it, it's occasionally they'll have something that I didn't know, but it's like some obscure data point somewhere. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's really yeah. funny because a lot of it is like, hey, if you actually just read your Bible, 
a lot of the stuff, number one, is you figure out is not true, or number two is actually just right there in plain text. It's not some kind of secret, but you know, you can't really sell videos that, hey, a lot of the things people tell you is actually true. That doesn't, the headline doesn't draw as many clicks. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. Well, and that's that's one of the reasons why I try to go out of my way whenever we come up against some of those, aha, gotcha, this is why you can't trust your Bible, and this is what they were hiding from you. Secret documents buried in the Vatican basement. Okay, there's no secret documents buried in the Vatican basement as far as the biblical text is concerned. Get right. over that theory. Um, it, but, um, you know, there might be documents about other things, but not the Bible. Well, anyway, and it, well, um, yeah, and well, and we, and we kind of there's a couple things, just, you know, and that was kind of what we set out to do was to talk about the weird stuff no one talks about. Then we're finding stuff all over that people aren't talking about in various verses. But then the other mm-hmm. thing, and I just want to touch on this about like this whole the secret biblical documents or how they <laughs> what a lot of people don't realize, and everyone wants to say oh, the Bible was canonized, the Bible was, was selected or put together at the Council of Nicaea by the, by the 4th century by the there. the Emperor Constantine. Yeah, well, the thing is, by the 4th century, there were so many copies of Paul's letters and other gospel writers' letters in circulation that mm-hmm. they had just kind of become accepted by the Church and used in so many places— uh, that it wasn't like they it wasn't like there was one single copy of all of these, and they decided, well, we're going to copy all these down and distribute them. Yeah, yeah, it it didn't work that way. Uh, so right. yeah, it's that's so since one we're of my... talking about this, we have to bring up every week, two or three times a week, someone on Facebook is going to say. Oh, the secret book of Enoch. It was taken out of the Bible to keep you from reading it. Guys, it's online in 20 different translations. Go look it up. No one can keep you from reading this book except your own laziness. Okay? It's just that simple. I've got three copies in my own library. So, yeah, and that, that's a pretty is, common. That's a pretty common one I've uh, seen in a lot of those lists. But the books of the Bible well, were removed. Well, we, we've got them. Uh, do, you know, it's just somebody hasn't gone to the library. I mean, it's just they haven't bothered to Google. Well, and um, it, well, and it's interesting to me, though, because you I mean, you can look at all these removals of books. And I mean, really, it just comes down to different traditions, view different things as authoritative. And what's interesting to me is like you can pare down the Bible to the 66 books that the Protestants recognize and still wind up with enough information to to right. figure out the gospel. Yeah, it's not lacking in that sense at all. And so, and I do want to say, because, okay, I totally did not mean to go there this morning when we woke up, but there is a book out there that's called like the Keys to Enoch or something like that. Guys, that's not the book of Enoch that we're talking about. And that that's just straight up witchcraft. So oh, there's another one. Key- it's not Keys to Enoch. Somebody's keys to wisdom or something like that and i actually had someone talking oh, to me about this there was keys to knowledge keys to and there and uh i had someone uh, actually talking to me about this and the, apparently the the whole premise of the book is that melchizedek is actually the prophetic figure behind the major world religions and they're all really the same mm-hmm. and uh, I'm like, yeah, and 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 they're like, because the Bible says this about Melchizedek. I'm like, the Bible literally does not say any of that about Melchizedek. <laughs> um, so it's like that guy's book well, says this, this about Melchizedek. Why... But well, and that's the reason why we study because I so often I see people say, oh, well, the Bible says this or that, and I'm like, chapter and verse. I mean, seriously, a lot of times these conversations you can just completely diffuse them and take them into a more profitable direction if if you ask that one question, chapter and verse. Exactly. And I'm not saying that to be confrontational. I'm just saying if you're going to say something about the Bible that needs to be backed up within the Bible, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's that simple. And that, that includes, you know, some good old Protestant conservative kind of teachings, too, because there's some things we were told that were in the Bible that maybe if you squint and tilt your head, you know, I, but <laughs> even that's unlikely. So 
Anyway, Genesis 1 and 2, prevailing trend, let's separate them, let's say they're from two different traditions and some editor brought them together and then they're supposed to tell two different creations account, aha, gotcha, this is why you can't trust your Bible. No, they, they function together. Um, basically, if you want to get like overly simplistic, let's just break it down. Sometimes I like overly simplistic because it's a good place to kind of get that little toehold so you can then dig deeper. But we have Genesis 1, creation of the world at large, the earth, the cosmos, it's, it's, it's being put together. Genesis 2 is what Walter, um, sorry, uh, John Walton, I don't know where Walter, I've been watching French, well, that's where Walter came from. I, I thought, uh, I thought maybe Walton. you were thinking Brueggemann, Walter. No, well, there's that Walter too. Um, this is, um, this is uh, John Walton. There's a W in there. Anyway, he ta- calls it the temple count in Genesis 2. And the two stories function together. So you've got like the sacred space of the world, but then you have this like extra sacred space where God actually meets with humanity. He walks with humanity. He talks, he answers questions. He, you know, he's there with them. And and that's like a really amazing thing, especially whenever you look at other creation accounts at no other creation account. Do you have this level of intimacy between God and his creation, any God and his creation? And so that's the point of these two stories being told together. You've got the world, which is supposed to be create sacred space, but then you have Eden, which is supposed to be extra sacred space, for lack of better terms. Now, well, I mean that um, that's not uncommon. I mean, when you look at the temple, you've got the main court, then you have like a, as you get towards the center, you get more and more sacred. So that that makes sense. To the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Well, and that's, that is, this is, it's this progression. And we see this progression over and over again played out within scripture in several different ways. And that's actually where we're going with this. Now, a couple of key points for people who might not have read Genesis 1 uh, this morning. We got to remember that in Genesis 1, there's no struggle. Okay. The earth is created through divine fiat. God speaks it. It happens. There's no battle. God doesn't have to overcome the powers of darkness or or overthrow chaos. It just happens because God says it. Creation, the purpose is to impose order on chaos. The second verse, there's a tohu vabohu, this order, disorder, void and without form, all these ways that we translate it, trying to understand what this cosmic um, reality was before we begin to have this order imposed. But the point is, we go from chaos to order, and we do it through God's decree. Uh, God gives dominion and authority to humanity over the animals. Now, this is going to be important later, and I think this is a really interesting point. And the the account concludes with its tov moed. it's very good. It's not just good, it's very good. It's the best it can be. And then this account kind of varies from Genesis 2 in a number of ways. And probably the most significant, but what I find to be interesting, the most overlooked account, it, uh, different, sorry, is everything in the garden isn't good. Everything at the earth as a whole at this point is good. It's very good. But in the garden, we literally have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in the garden, we have good and evil juxtaposed in this reality. And so that's really interesting. Also in the garden, we have the nakash, that divine, embodied, intelligent evil, usually referred to as the serpent. So in the garden is not just good and not just very good. And I'm, I'm really driving that home because, um, you know, where God chooses to meet with humanity, and uh, I know some friends are going to pick up and run with this, possibly even Joshua Sherman, the place where God chooses to meet with humanity is not where everything's good. He chooses to meet with humanity in that place where there's the ability to choose between good and evil. It's right there in the text. And isn't, I mean, to me, that's just like amazing, uh, especially when we want to talk about determinism and election, the idea that this is the specific place that God decides to be manifest. And when he could have chosen the just outside the gates, when he could have chosen not to put this in the garden. So I see you thinking. So yeah. 
I'm also trying not to sneeze. My allergies are a little crazy today. Uh, snow <laughs> melt. I smelt in Oklahoma. So, okay, in very broad strokes, if we look at the creation account, and this is going with that, that traditional Jewish mindset where the Akeda, the binding of Isaac, is the, uh, the final day. We have the creation, day one. We have the fall, day two. We have Cain and Abel, day three. We have the sons of God in Genesis 6, day four. Day five would be the flood. Babel would be day six. And then day seven is the Akeda. And so, again, you know, this is not how the Bible presents us. This is a traditional view. But it does shed some insight into some views on um, David and, and Saul. And now, hold on to your hats here for a second, because when Rabbi Silver said this, I actually went, no, that can't be right. He said Saul was the ideal king, not David, Saul. And I couldn't even begin to process that at the beginning because it's so counter to everything I have been taught. Right. And (laughs) yeah, I had to like stop and go, okay, you're going to have to walk me through this. And I love stuff like that. I love things that make me actually reconsider what I think I know, because now whether or not I agree with what's being presented to me, it at least makes me go back and reconsider and think through why I believe what I do. So I either wind up changing my mind because I have better information, that's happened more than once, or I end up reconfirming and reaffirming what I know to be true. And I find out that I often learn how to articulate it better just by having to think about it in context with something it's not. So, um, you know, instead of just turning it off because I went, that can't be right, and got all uh, smug and self-righteous, I actually uh, decided to listen to what he had to say. And so, um, now, what we need to remember here is now that we've gone through Genesis 1, you've got the information kind of... um, kind of in your fresh in your mind the uh Saul's reign is established without struggle without any kind of battle he didn't rise to power like most kings of his day which you know would have been a warlord somebody who came in and conquered the people a, a warrior who was just so powerful and effective that People had to submit to his rule. God spoke it. It happened. End of the story. I mean, that, that's how it happened. So again, we're back to that Genesis 1 account. How did creation happen? God speaks it. It happens. Saul's reign unites the chaotic tribes that we encountered in the book of Judges. He actually brings a national unity and identity to Israel that it does not have before his, his reign. So, excuse me. So in that way, we have this, this echo of creation where it is about imposing order on chaos. Now, Saul is given dominion and authority over the people. Adam and Eve were given dominion and authority over the animals. And that's, like I said, going to be really important here in a minute. When we're in do- introduced to Saul, we're told that he is tov, he is good. As a matter of fact, he, there's no one in all of Israel who's as good as Saul. Good is not a word that we use to describe David. It's only for Saul. Now, Saul's reign, if you remember back to 1 Samuel, and I know I'm asking a lot because we mean, we've been in Samuel for a while now. Right. <laughs> Samuel really... <laughs> so we've been in the last Samuel four really chapters for a real long time. <laughs> I, yeah, and we still got two more chapters to go. Uh, so the... Uh, Samuel tried to create that kind of, if you want to be positive, kind of a symbiotic relationship between the prophet and the king. But if you want to go back to, um, you know, if you want to be kind of negative about it, you would say it was kind of codependent. But this idea that the king actually had a tangible manifestation and this very um, specific way of interacting with God in, in a real way where God's voice is heard through the prophet. And we kind of have that echo back again to Eden, where God actually um, meets with humanity. Now, 
Samuel did not perceive the kingship as a separate uh, office. He didn't think that it was supposed to be an independent office. It was supposed to have that that connection back to the prophetic that was very um, intertwined. And we, we see how effectively he was able to do this with Saul. Because remember, when Samuel is dead and Saul needs, needs some kind of guidance, I mean, he resorts to going to the witch or medium of Endor, depending on which title you're going to call her. And when he goes back to her, uh, you know, he doesn't want to talk to her. He wants to talk to Samuel. And we spent a lot of time on that in, the, um, in those episodes. So now Saul has one shiny moment as king. And uh, again, remembering way back, because this is back whenever we're talking about Jabesh Gilead, the Ammonites had decided to attack the city. This is an outlying city. This is a city that if it wasn't for the unifying power of a king to protect the entire nation, not just individual tribes, because remember, most of the judges in the book of Judges, they didn't lead the entire nation. They just had individual tribes. This is a city that would have gotten lost. Mm. This is a city that would not have had any kind of protection because they just weren't significant to any particular tribe. They just kind of existed on the fringes. But when you have a king who says, this is my country, these are my boundaries, this is my border, now I'm going to defend it. Now they can expect to be defended. And that's what, exactly what Saul does. And now if you remember Saul's enemy there, Saul's enemy in that, mo- in that city or in that battle was the Nakash. Now remember, the Nakash is the other name for the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And Saul actually defeats the Nakash. Now, the lowest moment in Saul's reign is when... Um, he goes up against the Amalekites. And if you remember in the, that particular war, instead of listening to what God had said, what the divine decree was, he decides to keep the good animals, the best animals, and the king alive. Now, what you need to remember with that is the, the animals and the king and all the people were under Karem. That's they were devoted to God. Mm. And as such, they belonged to God. So Saul is actually taking something that doesn't belong to him, something that belonged literally to God. And so through this disobedience, uh, you know, Saul is very much like Adam and Eve in that he disobeys a direct divine order. Don't touch that. Don't take that. It's not yours. Much like the fruit in the Garden of Good and Evil. Now, the Final straw, though, is when Samuel confronts Saul, and what does Saul say? The people made me do it. The people were the ones who kept them alive. The people were the ones who wanted to offer them as a sacrifice. Hmm. Not, hey, I'm king. Not, I'm the one who has authority. I'm not, you know, he, he doesn't take responsibility, which is very much in keeping with what does Adam say? Well, you know, God, this woman that you gave me, so it's this inability to take responsibility for his actions, but it's also, it's beyond that. And this is what I didn't realize until I was studying through this. It's not just, they didn't take responsibility for their own actions. It's that they did not exercise the authority over those things that they had been given authority over. Because Adam and Eve had been given authority over the animals. That's part of that Genesis 2 account and Genesis 1 account. Humanity has authority over the animals. Saul has authority over the people. And so it's in that surrender and, and that failure to be the leader and exercise the dominion that God gave them that they actually surrender their right to have any authority. So I think we can see the, the, the connections between Saul and, and the garden pretty clearly. I, I don't think those are any kind of stretch at all. But... Mm-hmm. Um, now, we, we also noted that there's the connection. We spent a lot of time with this when we talked the introduction of Saul, uh, that, you know, he is he's tall. Who else is tall? Well, it's the Rephaim. It's the, um, the giants that lived in the land of Canaan. We talked about how uh, he is, his father is a Gabor Kail, a mighty man of valor. And so we got that connection to Genesis 6. Um, we also have another connection to Genesis 6 because 
God says in Genesis 6 that he regrets or he repents of making humanity. And then whenever Saul is talking to Samuel about making, when God is talking to Saul, Samuel about making Saul king, God says that again, I repent, I regret that I made him king. And so in case you want to look those up, make sure I'm right. Genesis 6, 6 and Samuel 15, 10, 1 Samuel 15, 10. So Genesis 1 and 2 are about sacred space being created. Genesis 3 is about sacred space being lost. Genesis 6 is about sacred space being so polluted that God has to set the, the reset button. And from here on out, the narrative is about reclaiming the sacred space. It's about recreating the sacred space. And Rabbi Silber actually, um, I thought he, he said something interesting. He says it's about finding that alternative to Eden. Uh, and the reason why he calls it an alternative to Eden is because humanity in its present form, we can't live in, in Eden. Uh, we, you know, we, we are incapable of inhabiting that space. And he even um, suggested there might be an argument to be made that humanity could never maintain a space such as Eden uh, just because we're all going to sin at some point. Now, he goes on to explain how Saul being the ideal, it, it, Saul actually presents us with this idea of sacred space and how it functions being lost. And sorry about the puppy in the background. Uh, but sacred space being being lost because... Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Just keep going. <laughs> but sacred space being lost through the failure to exercise authority and the failure to repent. And so then we have this, this very notably reenacted through Abraham. And, you know, Abraham's participation in, in this quest for sacred space, of course, is in the, the purchasing of the grave for Sarah, but also in the Akedah, that the binding of Isaac. And, you know, it's in this place of unwavering obedience to God's command that, God, that Abraham actually reclaims sacred space in Mount Moriah. And in some ways, that's most fully enacted what is, when he names it, and he, he names the place, the, the place where God will provide. Mm-hmm. And it reminds us of that provision in Eden that God manifests with humanity from the very beginning. So now that creation's complete, we have, you know, we, we were given, we lost it, we were invited to participate, we obeyed, and then we receive again. That's kind of the, the broad strokes of how this, this process is working. And in this new manner uh, that we're, we're participating with God, because we're not in a place where all is good. We're in a place where sin and brokenness and the corruption that was um, introduced into the world is still very much a part of our reality. And so the thing is, sacred space is restored through our active obedience. Evil is restrained through our obedience. And so it's really, it's this really interesting picture that we don't often think about how God has been enacting these these principles. And so when David reenacts the the patterns of the Akedah, like we talked uh, last week, he solidifies the purpose of the nation. Because the purpose of Israel isn't to be this nation that's so set apart that it's no good to anyone, or it's so holy that people can't interact with it. It's a place where people can and do sin, but there's always a place within there, within that nation, where people can return to God, to reestablish that relationship to God. Why? Because Israel's a nation of priests, and a nation of priests is a nation that has, you know, everyone ready and should be willing and able to to help usher people into that sacred space. And of course, we see that enacted, like you were talking with the temple. So we we see that with the temple, but it should be more than that. It's actually in day-to-day living. And so what we need to remember that, you know, even though Eden was lost in that sacred space that we found in Genesis 1 and 2, we can't return to that. We actually recreate sacred space whenever we we walk in accordance to God's decrees and commands. And David, you know, he recognizes that, yes, he can do this, but there's also going to be points of failure in which we've noted. Over and over again, the book of Samuel has shown you David is not a great person. 
he, he really made some horrible mistakes and, and some mistakes that, I mean, honestly, if a pastor today made these same kinds of mistakes, and I'm using that word loosely, um, if a pastor did that, I would be like, no, I, I can't sit under your leadership anymore. I would be looking for a new church. So um, this is why David exceeds Saul, but he's not the ideal because Saul was supposed to be the king that showed us that humanity walks with this, this relationship where God is so visibly present. And with Saul, that was the present of Samuel, the, the, the guy who actually hears God speak. And David, you know, yes, the, the prophets confront and they correct him when he needs it. But David doesn't need that same hand-holding that Saul had from the prophet. David actually is a king without that kind of direct guidance until he steps out of line. Mm-hmm. And when he is confronted, then he, he actually, you know, he does repent. And so I think it's, it's really interesting to see that the, this, this comparison where you don't think about David and Saul, uh, where Saul might actually be the ideal and David would be the, the one who who is, I don't want to say plan B, but he, he's the one that God says, okay, you messed this up. Here's how we're going to move forward. And the moving forward is a kingdom where people can repent. And so, and, and one of the things I do love about David is David is not idealistic and he's not naive about sin and its power to damage. He actually is capable of recognizing the reality and the depth of sin and, and just how horrible it is. And he recognizes the absolute need for repentance and that obedience and faith. But at the same time, where Saul was so pious and role-driven, and you know, and he was overly devout in some ways to the point that he really couldn't see the purpose. All he saw was the rules. David got the heart behind the rules. And so Going back to the Akeda, what David does, he actually exceeds Abraham. And when I say he exceeds Abraham, what does he do? Abraham offers his son on the altar. David says, take me, take my whole house, take everything. Abraham never offered himself in place of Isaac. Actually, so David actually not only reconfirms this is sacred space, because remember Mount Moriah, where, where Abraham offered Isaac, and this place where David sees the angel of the Lord, they're supposed to be the same place, the same geographic location. So Abraham sets out the first claim, then David strengthens and, and uh, you know enlarges the claim on that space, because now this isn't going to be just a place where we offer up someone else or something else. This is going to be a place where we offer up ourselves instead. So this is the reason why David helps us get closer to that picture and the image of the Messiah and what the Messiah is supposed to accomplish. So I love it. I think it's just an amazing kind of, um, I, it, to me, whenever you can see the, these patterns and the these cycles kind of reconfirmed and and, re, and played out and you kind of see how each time it's almost like a spiral each time that we have a repeating pattern in the bible it just kind of expands and gets a little more and it goes a little deeper and mm-hmm. so you you see that this this isn't just chaos because i think so often when we're living in our lives the day to day and you know you've got the puppy growl, growling in the background and he brought me a can of lacroix water a while ago uh you know it, that seems like chaos you know, and those are just the little things. And so when we see these patterns that look like chaos, but when uh, from inside, but we can pull back and see the patterns. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, yeah, God's got this. And, and we can have faith and we can make those, those statements of, I need to repent and I need to have authority over what I was given authority over. Because it's the other thing about David, and I think I missed this in the notes. David never relinquishes the claim to the throne to the people. As a matter of fact, the people around him, this is really interesting, the people around him encourage him to be the king and to be a king beyond what even Saul was. 
And we're going to talk about um, that as we move forward because um, something really interesting happens in Second uh, Samuel 21b. And uh, sorry, yeah, 21b, because that's where we're going to go now. We're going to start jumping into uh, that part of the text. We've already gone through 21a, where we talked about uh, Saul and the Gibeonites and David having to address the blood guilt there. Mm-hmm. So we're going to pick up. On the next step in on our chiasm, remember we're studying the chiasm, we're going from end to end, we're bringing those together, and so this is the next step into that central uh, point. So the two, the two texts that are playing off of each other is 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22, and 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 39. Now, um, there is a parallel retelling of the 21 passage in 1 Chronicles 24 through 8, and we'll kind of talk about that some. But the two passages here are connected specifically by David's mighty men, his Giborim. Okay. So that's, that's our connecting point right there. And we'll look at 21 first. We're going to work our way through it. And what we're going to immediately realize is there's problems. Okay. This, there's some major problems. And um, let's just be honest. There appears to be some contradictions in the text. And so we're going to have to figure out what are we going to do with these contradictions and can we make them make sense? Do we need to make them make sense? So um, this can be divided into two sections, even second, um, second Samuel 21. We can look at 15 through 17 and 18 through 22. And, and that's what we're going to do because I think it's just a little easier. So we're going to deal with the two individually and then we'll kind of look at them together. So, verse 15, there was a war between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants and fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. Okay, so once again, just a reminder, chapters 21 through 24 in 2 Samuel are not chronological. We don't know when these events happened. So, this means we've got a lot of controversy because... um, there's several wars with the Philistines throughout David's reign. There's war with the Philistines before David's reign. So where do we put this? Um, we don't know which war this might refer to. And it could possibly also be an amalgamation of several different wars. And actually, that's what I think what ha- is what happened. We've got events from several different wars that are put together. Now, some commentators see this final phrase of David grew weary as an indication that this is later in David's reign, that, you know, he's an older man. He, he can't go out and fight all day like he did when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Okay. It makes sense. But, you know, come on, this is just making the presumption that only old people get tired. But if you look at any given moment in David's life, he has every reason to be tired all the time. I mean, you spend your life on the run from Saul, uh, Hiding in caves, I, I would think that even a young man might get, get weary. So not a great, um, no great indicator really of when this might have happened. So verse 16, one of these wonderful names, Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and he was armed with a new sword thought to kill David. Okay, so first we got this really weird name. Alter says this. The name looks bizarre in the Hebrew as in tr- transliteration and probably betrays a corrupt text. So let me break that down. I know we've covered this before, but in case you're new, a transliteration is where you take a word in one language and you replace the letters in that word with the letters of a second language and, or, that sound the same. Or so, at least similar, which is oftentimes what we get when we're coming from Hebrew, because we don't have a lot of those sounds in English. We don't. Well, and we don't have a J in Hebrew. Okay, we just we just don't. So, um, yeah. And the problem with the transliteration is, um, like you said, they're very close. Um, most of our names in the Bible are transliterations. So David is Dalit Bav Dalit. So David, um, Shmuel, Samuel. It, it's the it's the um, it, it's the same kind of letters. Uh, the difference in pronunciation doesn't come from the consonants; it comes from the the vowel sounds. Now, what is interesting? 
for those of you who might want to learn Hebrew, the names of the Hebrew letters are the sound that the Hebrew letter makes. So Dalit, Vav, Dalit, you got the D sound, the V sound, and the D sound again. So you can, if you know the names of the letter, you kind of know what the consonants are supposed to say. The problem with transliterations is they are not translations. Translations tell you what the word means and may not sound like anything like the original word. So transliterations are great for names. They're really bad for trying to tell you the meaning of a word. And so what Alter is saying is this guy's name belongs to a different language other than Hebrew, has been translated from this other language into Hebrew, and then the writers of the Bible take the Hebrew and have transliterated it into English. By this point, who possibly can tell you what in the world the name means? We don't know, okay? <laughs> so that, that's the reason why I, I, I wanted to just point that out, because so often we don't realize the process that translation goes through. Now, he goes on to say, and this is parenthetically on his part, the textual obscurities that abound in this section in all likelihood reflect the fact that this is an old literary document imperfectly transmitted. The older things are, sometimes the more wear and tear they've got on them. And we're going to talk about why this can cause some, some struggles. Okay. There's a lot of problems. There's just a lot of problems with, with this whole part because it is old. We've got some things that are going on within the text that we really have to fight to make sense of. There's some really good solutions. There's some really bad solutions. Uh, you're going to look at the English translations and you're going to see there's going to be several different alternatives on different verses. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're bad translations. It means we're all doing the best with what we got to work with. So um, now the, the, the thing is um, that don't let that discourage you. That just means that we've managed to preserve it in the form the closest to what we have. I mean, it's still available in these oldest forms uh, and we still have manuscripts that reflect these traditions. So um, the fact that we're hanging on to them tells you about the veracity of biblical translators, not just to discard something because it doesn't make sense or to manipulate it to mean one thing that fits their agenda, which is really pretty awesome. But the rabbis and the sages were not content to leave this name to be a mystery, and we all know what this means. It means we've got some really good explanation here. And when I say explanation, I mean highly entertaining sometimes. Um, when you say really good, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it, I like the rabbinic commentary because it, it forces me to take, think about the text in a new way. Not necessarily in a way I agree with, but in a way that my English mind just isn't going to come up with. And so they say that this name is a contraction for Ish, um, see if I can read my own right, Ish uh, Shaba Al-Aseke Nov, or actually a man who came because of the matter at Nov. Now, um, if you remember what the matter at Nov was, David was on the run from Saul. He goes to the temple or to the uh, tabernacle that's there. He asks for the showbread. He eats the showbread. He asks for the sword. He gets the sword of Goliath. Saul gets mad because the priest actually helps him out. And Saul murders all the priests at Nov, except for, uh, I believe it was Abathar. So David is, you know, he's the catalyst. He's what sets off the, this event at Nov. And because he sets off the events at Nov, um, there's some level of, of culpability on his part. And since this follows the events in 2 Samuel 24, I'm sorry, 21, which, you know, we had the speculation, could this possibly be, with, you know, whatever Saul did with the Gibeonites, could this possibly be what happened at Nov? And we talked about why it might be connected. And so the, the rabbis see this as a support, see this name as a support for that argument that the two go together because now Saul's, David's had to deal with Saul's blood guilt with the matter at Nov. Now he's having to deal with his own issues for what he caused to happen at Nov. A little bit of a stretch. 
Okay. Um, yeah, the last part of the, the name is Binov, uh, which is at Nov or by Nov. But who's to say it really has anything to do with that? We don't know. And, um, you know, it does provide a nice way of tying everything up in a nice little pretty package, but it might be just too much. So next we're told that Ishbi Banov is one of the descendants of the giants or the Haratha. Haratha uh, is the Hebrew for the giants or uh, the, the Raphaim, if we want to be plural. It's found in Genesis 15:20. And um, this is one of the people on the list of lands that God is going to give to Abram at the time. Deuteronomy 2.10, The Rephaim are said to encompass the Anakim, uh, the Emim, the Amorites displace the, uh, the um, Rephaim, and they're described to be as tall as the Anakim. 3.13 in Deuteronomy says that Bashan is identified as the land of the Rephaim. Joshua 12.4, King Og is a remnant of the Rephaim. Um, Bergen notes that the Hebrew literally reads Ha-Rephaim. The reason why that's important, that Ha sound, that H sound there, um, it's a hey in the Hebrew, is denoting a group. So it'd be the Rafa, because it's not plural here, it's just singular, the Rafa. But we do this. We we do this in English where we we will take um I'm trying to think of a good example. I, I know we do this, where you know, we have people groups that we don't necessarily refer to in the plural. We refer to them in the singular. And when we do, we we add that definite article, the the in front of it, you know, uh the Texans, the Oklahoma, the Okies. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole, um, there's not real good, strong linguistic rules that govern how we use this is what I'm trying to say. Well, I I was thinking of like tribal names, like the Cherokee or the Iroquois or the, uh, Navajo, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't pluralize that when we're talking about the, the whole, you know, like the, we're talking about the whole nation. Uh, or the whole tribal right. government, and it's certainly or that when we people. <laughs> that's a, that's a really good example because even when we say the Cherokee, we know we aren't speaking about a specific Cherokee person. We're not talking about Sequoia. We're not talking about John Ross. We're we're talking about the people group. And so, um, you know, you might in some weird random situation, but overall, the generality is going to be that this is a a people group. And so, because there is this idea out there that the Rafa would re- refer to a specific person. And, you know, we talked about this some with Job and how we talk, the uses of the word Satan or the Satan. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, okay, is, is this a, a descendant of the Rafa? Is, is Rafa something, you know, some person, some being way back where uh in the beginning um maybe i mean the the family tribe got the name from somewhere so the idea that there might be a particular being named the rafa who would have been you know go back to the spiritual beings back in genesis 6 and but the the thing is people have seen the rafa uh, as being a specific god to the point that these soldiers are not like descendants of the Rephaim as in a biological descendants, but they're actually devotees to Rafa, a deity, uh, which I don't think the two have to exclude each other. Because when we're talking about these spiritual beings and we're talking about how they, they interplay with the, the, the earthly realm, we, we find that these deities or these, these Elohim, lesser Elohim, are worshipped as God, but yet mm-hmm. they're still interacting in very physical ways with humanity. So I don't think, number one, I don't think we have any reason to have to reject the idea that it is a spiritual being, but I don't think we have to reject the idea that this is, you know, the, the um, there's a word I'm looking for, the progenitor of this race, you know. The uh, progeny? Can, it can both well, the the Rafa being the, the oh, okay, gotcha. beginning, uh, so yeah. So I mean, that's the thing. It does, yeah. That's still not the word I'm looking for. There's like one particular word that's perfect, but my brain refuses to give it to me. Um, 
But the idea, yeah, but the idea that you have to choose is kind of stupid, I think. Uh, You know, a lot of times concepts are really big enough to encompass a multitude of ideas within them. And only by holding all of them together do you get the full concept. And I don't think that we need to uh, change the wording because there's actually a couple of people who suggested that we drop the hay or the definite article altogether uh, in order to make it read smoother. And I don't think we need to change what's actually in the Hebrew text. Now, sometimes there's linguistic and, and contextual reasons to say, hey, we need to translate this differently. But usually it's pretty obvious because, you know, that there are issues and people who, who read this language pick up on them, you know, and, and these issues are things like, you know, um, clarity, um, or it needs to be amended to, to make sense, to like actually be intelligible, uh, or it, it's a weird contradiction of everything around it or everything that's come before. And so uh, maybe adding a letter would actually make it read better. But that's not normal. Um, and right here, this reads just fine with the hay in front of it. I, I, the only reason I can think that you might want to remove it is if you don't like the idea that these sons of gods actually became physical beings and actually did father these races of giants. Now, um, I kind of went through my notes real quick. But anyway, I'm not as proficient as a lot of the scholars who, who want to make this change. Um, but I am proficient enough to say I don't see any evidence of why it would be necessary to change this unless you really just don't like the supernatural aspect of the story. That's the only reason I could think of to change it, because there are, I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a huge debate on what exactly, I mean, it's been going on for years on what exactly the Nephilim Word Nephilim means if it, if the Bible was writing about that literally or not, but I and I'm with you. I don't see any actual reason to change it unless you just want to get rid of that kind of supernatural element. And I don't know why you would want to make things less supernatural in the Bible. Uh, well, I mean, it, where and, do we stop? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, where do you draw the line when you're when you're when you're tossing out things in the Bible, well, what else can we get rid of that we don't like? Well, and, now we got manna being snails in snail poop, you know? <laughs> I mean, that, that's what we right. wind up with when we try to do, to demythologize that, that word. We want to take the myth out of it. We want right. to take the supernatural out of it. We, we can wind up with these wacky conspiracy theory kind of just that sound even crazier than just, hey, maybe God did something supernatural. Maybe Um, God actually interacts with the world. (gasps) I I know, I know. And, you know, people have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with that. I mean, if we're going to be, you know, just honest, sometimes I have a hard time thinking God, you know, does interact with the world today. Uh, I have no problem with everybody else. Matter of fact, I have no problem with people next door today. Sometimes uh, the only problem I have is the idea that God actually interacts with me. Um, that's, that's kind of a big one to wrap your mind around. But, you know, I think a lot of that begins with this idea that God isn't alive, vital, and active throughout all of history. And the other reason why I think we need to keep this idea that, yes, this, this guy, this Ishbi Banav, he is, he is something beyond the regular human because the text actually goes out of its way to tell us about this guy. He's got a spear that weighs 300 shekels. That's seven and a half pounds on a spearhead. Um, no, that's, that's more. That's 18 pounds uh, okay. on the, the low end. Because on, on my conversion, I got a nice little footnote in my Bible that says two <laughs> ounces. Okay. Oh, no, so that's even more than that. So it says between two to five ounces. So on the low end. Um, okay, because I had grams. Uh, but yeah. I actually looked at somebody else who said, yeah. So let's see here. So that's 600 divided by 16. That's 37 <laughs> pounds. Okay. 37.5 pounds. But 37 in particular. That's a lot of weight it, on the end of a sphere. Right. And that's on the low end because on my yeah. note down here, it says two to five ounces. So yeah. you go with five, it could be even more. 
This is true. Now, now this is, and I know I got this right. This is half of what Goliath spheroid. Um, now, Goliath was uh, 600 shekels. And, you know, this could be due to differences in material. Um, it could be differences due to differences in construction. It could be that this guy wasn't as big as Goliath. You know, I'm cool with that, too. Um, bronze is an interesting, uh, interesting metal in that it's denser. It's uh, less brittle. And uh, so it's less likely to, to break. And um, it's easier to cast, but not easier to forge, which is another interesting thing. But the, the idea that, um, that this guy still had this huge spear is something that the, the writer is presenting to you, not because, oh, this is a fun little tidbit. This is because, hey, you need to know this guy's big enough to wield this kind of a weapon. And so I think if we try to make him less than this giant, then what we're doing is showing our bias and not really paying attention to what the writer has actually put, put on the page. Mm -hmm. um, and to be quite honest, we are having to make an assumption here. And the assumption is that we're actually talking about a spear to begin with uh, because we're, we're kind of drawing from context in the way that it's set up because we have this word, and this word here is kyan, uh, or kini, which, uh, sorry, kano. <laughs> I need to write my Hebrew clear. Uh, kano, which is, you know, the name based on the root word of kyan, which kyan, if you, is, we say it in English, is Cain, who is the great-great-grandfather of Tubal-Cain, and Tubal-Cain is the one who is, quote, the forger of all instruments, bronze and iron. So Ishvi Benov has a uh, has this huge weapon that we don't know really what it is, but we think because of the structure of the sentence and the way it's laid out, and it's very similar to how it was written in First Samuel back with David and Goliath, mm -hmm. that this is probably a spear. And he has this this new weapon. We don't know what it is. We just know he has a new something. The word is like gone. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's just not there. Uh, usually, the translators are going to supply a word. They're going to say that he has a new sword. And the reason why they go with sword is because news in the feminine form and sword is a feminine word in, in the Bible and Hebrew. And so it would make sense that he has a sword and a spear too. So. Okay, possibly. Uh, sometimes you get just weapon, generic weapon of some sort. Uh, gear, armor. Uh, the Septuagint actually supplies the word club or mace is what it says. Um, whatever it was, we know that he thinks he can kill David with it. Fair enough. So, you know, it, it, it's something. And so if we stopped reading right there, which I have a feeling we're getting ready to do, uh, but if we stopped reading right there, we would think that this guy is, you know, maybe sitting at the campfire having this passing thought, hey, I've got this great weaponry and I can kill the king of Israel and it's going to be awesome. But if we keep reading, we actually find out that this is like something that's taking place on the battlefield, that it is, it is happening um, in real time, not just as some kind of conjecture on this guy's part. Okay, I'm just going to have to finish up this verse. It says, but Abishai, the son of Zuriah, came to his aid, talking about David here, and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So David actually is saved from a giant by Abishai. And if you remember, Abishai is his nephew. Abishai uh, is a sister's son. So David in this particular section, this kind of is a good place to set us up to prepare for next week. David in this particular section is not the, the indefeatable, invincible kid who met with Goliath at the gain of Samuel. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's now needing to be rescued and protected by his men, by the next generation. And so we've got some interesting things that are going to be happening and being revealed within this particular part of the text. And I had a lot of fun actually pulling this one apart. 
and I can't wait to get into it more, but we're just going to leave you right there. We'll, we'll get back in and we'll, we'll break down, uh, you know, what is this lamp of Israel and um, what it has to say that David can't go out with his men anymore. So anyway, so we'll leave it, leave it there. Yeah. That's, there was this, I, I really enjoyed this one. There was a lot of really good information there. So I'm, I'm, looking forward to hearing the next part because I do remember hearing some of this part of the story uh, growing up in, in Bible classes, things like that. Um, so I, I don't remember the point of any of them. Um, <laughs> well, I just remember I, that we touched on them and all of it. Well, and it was, and to be honest, it was my, the, when I was doing the correspondence stuff uh, in high school, it was mm-hmm. the Bible teacher that I had, and all the stuff that I remember of the points that he made on a lot of the stuff, I'm kind of finding out a lot of them were wrong, the <laughs> ones that I remember. So I'm really curious to, to see uh, what happens here. Well, maybe as a way of te- by teaser, uh, I should put out there, we're going to get into that contradictory account where David is not the guy who kills Goliath. And how do we answer that question? Because I actually had the opposite experience where Bible teachers steered as far away from this passage as they possibly could because they didn't know how to deal with what is obviously a contradiction. And so, um, you know, what do we do? Uh, that, that's going to be the, the question. And I, I think we have some good answers on that. But I'm going to look at all the possible solutions uh, when we come back next week, and or at least all the possible solutions I know of. Sure. And then people can pick out which one they like the best. So, Okay, works, <laughs> works for me. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap. And uh, I really, uh, I'm looking forward, leaving us on a cliffhanger here. Uh, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to next week and seeing what we have. Um, I do want to make a note. Uh, sorry to everyone if the last couple episodes have kind of come out at weird times. Um, we have had some issues where Emily lives. Uh, she doesn't have full internet access so we uh to get the videos to me she actually has to drive to our sister's house or other sister's house uh and upload them from there and also uh last week we actually went to go visit emily so i was <laughs> a little late getting the the last two episodes out and currently uh the road emily lives on is still impassable due to, due to ice uh, and snow and things and <laughs> a lot of sleet uh so I'll I'll be able to get the audio up this week, um, but it might be a little later on the video, just depending on how when the we weather can goes. Trek out. And, yeah, when Emily can get at, get at, get out of her house. So, in the meantime, uh, hit us up on the internet, uh, Raven Creek SC. I mean, I guess that's where you're going to hit us up anyway if you're listening to podcasts. <laughs> but uh, be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC on the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is the website, and uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing from you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week. Open Wallet Podcast, an exploration of personal finance. I'm Katie, a numbers nerd. And I'm Joe, a 40-year-old punk rocker. And And we're we're married. married. We're here to talk about and figure out all the personal finance questions we all deal with, like... How do I read my pay stub? How do I dress better on a budget? How do I start an emergency fund? What goes into buying a house? And lots more. So join us on Open Wallet Podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. 